in your Bibles to Mark chapter 9. We're going to be right at the end of Mark chapter 9. Uh, we'll be looking at 38, verse 38 through 50. Uh, we'll finish, finish this chapter out uh, today. And I want to say, first of all, that um, it's, it's quite easy to take, uh, take 38 and 41, 38 through 41, and then read it as a separate, uh, separate section from, from what comes after it, 42 through 50. But if we, if we read it all together, it actually it flows quite nicely, and, and uh, we, come to a, we come up with a, a meaning that is, uh, well, for, to me, it's a bit surprising. It's a bit surprising what, um, what comes of this when we read these two together. Uh, so, uh, let's pray, and then we'll, then we'll jump into this. Uh, Father, thank you for uh, this day. Thank you for your word. We pray that, uh, we pray you would be in our midst, that you would help, help us, Father, as we seek to understand your word and, and go out and, and live it. Pray, Father, that um, everything would be clear. Um, Father, that, uh, that you would... Um, that you would actually speak to us today through uh, what is um, what is read, what is preached, and and uh, Father, that uh, we might be changed. We're truly grateful for uh, your love for us, and we pray you would uh, just uh, come powerfully upon us today and and uh, speak. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So, if we keep in mind our context. The context uh, within chapter nine, uh, we'll recall that um, that Jesus has has told them, told the disciples, for the first time, that he would be delivered into the hands of men and and be killed and rise again. Now the disciples uh, did not understand, and, and Mark says as much. They did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. The disciples then began discussing who would be the greatest when Jesus arrived. It doesn't say in Jerusalem, but the fact that they're going to Jerusalem is giving them a clue as to what's going on. Right? This, this is where anyone goes to be enthroned, right? especially the Davidic king. And so the disciples begin discussing who's going to be the greatest when Jesus arrives in Jerusalem and sets up his kingdom. This seems to be clearly what's going on in their minds. What exactly they were, they were expecting, we don't know for sure, but, but if we use all the Gospels as our guide, we can see that uh, they likely expected Jesus to draw up an army and go about conquering. And you say, well, this sounds nothing like the Gospels. And you're, you're right, it does not sound like the Gospels. But if you look at them at what's going on in the first century, this is how they viewed the Messiah. So, the king is going to be just like David. He's going to draw up an army. He's going to defeat the nations, and, and Israel's going to live uh, under his rule. So they likely expected him to come to Jerusalem, draw up an army, and go about conquering. And what do you need if you are going to be that kind of king? Well, you need people at your right hand and at your left when you come in your kingdom. So they're expecting. They're not expecting, uh, they're not expecting to go out in heaven and, and rule uh, in some, some odd, peculiar way like that. They're thinking, we're going to Jerusalem. Jesus is going to set up his kingdom. He, he's uh, going to set up his kingdom. I'm going to be on the right hand. You're going to be on the left. And, and uh, 
And then they go about arguing about, arguing about this stuff. Now, uh, I would argue that this is a serious misunderstanding of what's going on in, in the Gospels and what Jesus wants them to see about the kingdom of God. But this is, this is behind uh, this text. This is clearly in the, in the first century what is going on. Now, to see how serious this misunderstanding of, of Jesus' kingdom is, we might have a look at, at Judas Iscariot and what he did in order to bring this version of the kingdom about. Now, we often think of, of Judas. And you say, well, what does this have to do with this text? It, it's just, it, if you think about Judas in this way, you'll see that, that this is kind of the undercurrent of all that's going on in the Gospels. There is, a, there is an interpretation of the tradition of Israel that is basically what the disciples and Judas himself have been feeding on for a long time. And this is, the, this is the kingdom of God that comes by revolution, right? That's what, it, by bloodshed, by violence, by revolution. And this is what they are accustomed to thinking about. Judas Iscariot, we often think of him as just a, a scoundrel who didn't believe in Jesus and, and who was in it for the money. And while this is true in some sense, I think something else is going on with, with Judas himself. Here he is like the other disciples, listening to Jesus this whole time talking about the coming of the kingdom. Perhaps he's growing a bit impatient and he would like to see this guy. Maybe there is something to this Jesus guy, but let's get this show on the road, right? Kind of like the guy that shot up the Walmart. Right? He wanted to get this thing going. Let's call all the patriots together and, and let's do something. No one else is a patriot. Let's show how patriotic we are. Let's all call together, call together the guys, rise up, throw, overthrow Rome, and, and get on with it. What would you do if you thought that perhaps there was something to this guy, but he was dragging his feet and not acting soon enough? And then you saw, perhaps, that you might even benefit from it financially. What would you do? Might you not hasten the conflict between the powers that be and the one who is called the, the Messianic king? Might you not bring it to a climax? Might you push God just a little bit? Push Jesus to act? Like being foolish and, and then assuming God will rescue us? This is what it means to tempt God. Now, the, the people in this, the, the disciples here, and remember Judas is among these guys. Okay? Remember that Judas is right there with these disciples the whole time, and he doesn't stick out to them like a sore thumb. He doesn't stick out uh, to them. They don't say, who is this guy? He doesn't believe in what Jesus is doing. He's right there with them. They're surprised. They have no idea what's going on when Jesus says to Judas, go and do what you have to do. Right? So they're thinking, they're actually thinking a lot the same. It's just that Judas decides to push it. He decides to jump off the cliff and make God act. Right? And, and that's, uh, that's what's called tempting God. Now, uh, Jesus, of course, is, is not going to go that route, um, and the disciples themselves don't ultimately end up going that route. But here they are, assuming the wrong story that goes with the Messianic king. They are assuming that, they, that he will become the king that they envision. Right? From their reading of the scriptures and from their reading of their recent history, Judas Maccabeus and these guys who, who overthrew the, pag the pagan powers, 
They're assuming that he will be the, the king that they envision, rather than molding their expectations to his words and actions. And Jesus is clarifying to them exactly what his kingdom is to look like. Now, the version of their kingdom is a kingdom of horses and chariots, of war, ultimately. And it's one legitimate story that seems to have precedence uh, in, in the Maccabean Revolt, which is a, a distant but fairly recent memory of, uh, of the people. And this is an event that, uh, that later becomes a holiday for the Jewish people when the Maccabeans overthrew the pagans and ran them out and cleansed the temple. And if scripture is read in a certain way, we might even find there's some justification for this type of kingdom. What does it mean that he will rule the nations with a rod of iron? What does it mean that the Messiah is going to do that, right? And there's some versions of Christianity that will read it. Even, even today, they'll read these, like Psalm 2 this way, that God is just going to uh, come fly in on a cloud and, and demolish his enemies, raining down nukes from above. But this is not the kingdom that Jesus envisions. From our context, from the last few weeks, we saw that his kingdom is a kingdom where the disciples have the status of children. Jesus' disciples have the status of children. Now, in the, in the ancient world, it was not like the modern world where, where children uh, are doted on and they are thought to be, you have a very high status. In the ancient world, every child was not special. And so to have the status of a child was not necessarily something honorable and good. Children were to be seen but not heard, as they used to say, right? This is a modern phenomenon. I'm not saying it's a wrong uh, th way to view children, to view them as special, but what I'm saying is that this is not the view of children that they're having in, in the first century in this text. And when Jesus calls, to get, calls this child and says, receive, uh, receive one like this child, this is shocking. It's not very shocking to us, but this is shocking to them. His kingdom is a kingdom where all the disciples, whether the disciples that are with Jesus or other disciples, will have the status of children. So when Jesus says, if anyone receives a child like this in my name, he receives me, this takes on quite a different meaning if we understand their status in the ancient world. What this seems to mean is that in his kingdom, no one is privileged over the other. Right? We're all like children of a very low status. We, and by this I mean those who are working in his name, and this is going to, this is going to become clearer as we, look at, um, as we look at this particular text, 38 through 50. There are going to be, there's this group of people who seem to be working in the name of Jesus, but they're not with the disciples. Okay, so um, we're going to come back to that, but those who are working in his name are all like these children, he seems to be saying there, both from the perspective of, of who we receive, who they as, as Jesus' disciples receive, and the perspective of the disciples themselves being received. Okay, so when Jesus leaves them, he's saying this in advance of leaving them because they too are going to be welcomed like little children, or they should be, and if anyone does, they will in no way lose their reward, okay? So this seems to be what he's getting at there. His kingdom 
he's going to clarify further, is a kingdom of servants. It's the genuine way of being king. The Gospels, and this is something that's very important, I think, to, to think about as we read these, these, uh, these Gospels. They're not only describing the fact that Jesus is the king or him as, as royalty. They also are defining what it means to be royalty. They are not only describing Jesus as the messianic king, they are defining what true royalty is. Jesus is defining it and redefining it, and this requires some careful attention because we are accustomed, just like they were, of seeing royalty and kings in a certain manner. And what Jesus is going to do is redefine what it means to be king. And thereby redefine what we are to be. Right? And this is very important. We are to be in him. And what that means is that we are to exercise royal prerogatives like him. And we are to obtain our identity in accordance with his identity. Humanity from the beginning was to be about the business of ruling and reflecting. Ruling as vice regents in his stead and thereby reflecting the image of God into the world. What does it say in Genesis 1? Genesis 1, he says, let us, create God, let us create mankind in our image, in our likeness. And then what does it say of mankind? And let them rule. What are they to be? They are to be rulers in the divine image of God. And so when Jesus arrives on the scene and says, I'm the king, I'm the image of God, we are to see in that a restoration of the new humanity, a restoration of what God was, God was intending for all mankind to be, and we see that in the Messiah. Humanity from the beginning was to be about the business of ruling and reflecting. And in the Gospels, they define what this means. What does it mean to rule in the image of God? What does it mean? Not like the pagans, no. This is a ruling through servanthood. The Son of Man came not to be served. Who would be served in that world? Royalty, right? The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. This is what it means to take the crown upon your head. Not by demanding preferential treatment, but by submitting to the humiliation brought about by suffering. And Jesus then redefines or defines what it means to rule as the image of God. We get a glimpse of this in uh, 2 Samuel 5, 1 through 4. I'm going to leave that to you, but just make a note of it and have a look at, at what's going on there. In that passage, you have, you have David, the messianic king. David is the, the anointed one of the Lord. And Saul has just died, and David is about to be anointed. Well, he's been anointed, but he's about to be enthroned as king. And all of Israel gathers together, and they say, we are bone of your bone and flesh of your flesh. What is true of you is true of us, essentially, is what they're saying. And this is what's going on 
with Jesus. So when Jesus is saying, this is what it means to be royal, this is what it means to live in the kingdom, he is saying, I am redefining what that means. To be truly royal is to be a servant. That's what true greatness is. Now, let's look at our text today, remember, remembering that we're breaking into this story after he has, he has taught the disciples to receive other children in his name and not to seek the preeminent spots in the kingdom. Verse 38, John said to them, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him. For no one who does a mighty work in my name will, soon, will be able soon afterwards to speak evil, evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you, and there's a change here, he's talking about them, he's talking about the one who is doing, uh, casting out demons in his name, and then he's going to switch the person. I say to you, whoever gives you, a cup of cold water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go into hell or Gehenna. We're going to come back to this term, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell or Gehenna. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes and be cast into Gehenna, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how, can you, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read that passage, I think, how are all of these things related to one another? They seem like discombobulated. It's like everything's kind of thrown in there together, but they don't seem to flow. I'm going to try to make sense of, of what's going on here. One thing that needs to be said before we look at this particular passage is that we should not view this from within our modern paradigm of who's in the kingdom, who's not in the kingdom. Okay? There's some of that there, but that's not what he's trying to get at. Right? Who goes to hell and who doesn't? That's not what he's getting at. What is important here is that the disciples learn who the true enemy of Jesus' kingdom, kingdom movement is and who the enemy is not. What they are guilty of is not realizing the seriousness of Jesus' mission. They do not realize that they are in a battle and that they need allies in this battle. And the allies should be treated as such. Okay, so by him bringing attention to this, they have, they have uh, he, he's addressing their misunderstanding of the seriousness of what's going on in the ministry of Jesus. They had not understood what he had said before about greatness, nor had they understood about uh, what, he had been, what he had said about receiving children in his name. And here are these men who are casting out demons in his name. The disciples are squashing their efforts in the battle. 
What does Jesus say about it? He says, do not stop them. We need all the allies we can get. You say, well, that sounds awfully human. Well, it is. They're in a battle, and they need allies in this battle because what they need is for everyone to understand what Jesus is doing. And when they see this man, this, this man that, that they're rebuking casting out demons in the name of Jesus, everyone gets a glimpse of what this, what this movement is about. It is about the overthrow of evil that has ruled from the beginning. That's what it's about. And the disciples are not getting the seriousness of it. They're fleshly, they're carnal. Now, we often will do the same thing in our own little Christian worlds, right? If, if the slightest deviation, people are labeled, tarred, feathered, and run out of town, right? Not, we don't recognize the seriousness of what's going on. Otherwise, we wouldn't be talking down our brethren just because we don't agree with them on these finer points of theology, right? This is very serious stuff, and Jesus is very serious about unity. Unity is often sacrificed in our current age at the cost of understanding, of discussion, and mutual struggle to understand the truth and fulfill the kingdom mission. Now, I'm not saying that lines aren't to be drawn. Sometimes lines have to be drawn, but we should be very, very careful in drawing lines about who's in and who's out, who's not, in, who's not doing it exactly the way we want to do it, and who is. Unity must be very sacred to us. Jesus is quite clear here that people who are operating in Jesus' name should not be hindered in their work. Do not hinder him, for there is no one who will perform a miracle in my name and be able soon afterwards to speak evil of me. For he who is not against, the, against us is for us. He then turns it around to them perhaps to say that he will not always be with them, and they too will be on the receiving end of things. Verse 41, for whoever gives you, talked about the, the people that the disciples are not receiving, he turns it around and says, whoever gives you a cup of cold water to drink, a cup of water to drink because of your name as followers of Christ, truly I say to you, he will not lose his reward. This may become you, disciples, and you want them to welcome you, right? And so you welcome others. Here's the point, one of the points. Do we believe that God can sort out things if we leave it to him, right? We go about our own mission, doing what we're supposed to do, what we're called to do, and let God sort it out. That seems to be what Jesus is getting at. It's like the, the spirit of Gamaliel, right? We'll see in, like in Acts. The spirit of Gamaliel was... They're wanting, to, they're wanting to stone all these Christians. And he prophetically, we don't know if he became a believer or not, but prophetically he says, let them alone. If this is of God, it will work out. If not, or if it's of God, it will not work out. If it is of God, you can't stop it. Right? That's what he's saying. And this, I think, is, is kind of the attitude of Jesus here. Like, they're involved in this. God's going to sort this out. We, we should leave it to him. He is the one who rewards. He is the one who judges a man's work, and it's very important to have this attitude ourselves. Now, this is where we get this transition, or it seems like a transition, but I suggest that we read verses 42 and following within the same 
uh, within the same sense that we've been reading what came before it. He continues, whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. And then he ends with, everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Now, this, like I said, this doesn't seem to fit, but this is how he, he concludes this whole section. Be at peace with one another. That seems to be what the whole thing is about. And so how do we understand what he's just said in light of his conclusion? It is here that we see just how serious he is about unity within the ranks, within the army. Because this warning of Gehenna, of hell as, we often, as it's often interpreted, this warning of Gehenna is a warning to us as disciples. Now you think about that. We often read this as like, this is a warning against those who don't believe that they'll go to hell one day when they die. It's not it. If we take seriously this context that, that what he's talking about is unity within the ranks, and then there's this threat of Gehenna, we'll come to see that he's talking to us or to the disciples. Not those on the outside, but those of us on the inside. How do we know this? Who are the little ones who believe in me? He's speaking to the, to the disciples, warning them, following his warning about seeking uh, to be the greatest. He's warning them about receiving others. These little ones who believe in me can be none other than the children he's just talked about. Right? So he's just talked about receiving little children in my name. These little ones who believe in me, that he says in, in verse 42, whoever causes one of these little ones to believe in me to sin, these must be the children he's talking about. But these aren't just any children, like we often think when we read this passage, that Jesus is just telling us to be nice to children. No, these children are those who are doing mighty works in his name. They are followers who are not a part of the disciples' group. That's what the illustration has been about. He takes this child and he says, receive, uh, receive people in my name, like this child, like you would receive this child. Okay. They are the ones who aren't following us, but they are to be received. I can imagine some in our crowd, not our people, but in our evangelical crowd, the famous ones who think they're the, the guardians of all God's truth, saying, those people aren't doing it right, they're heretics. Don't listen to them. Right. There's plenty of that going around, but we should be very careful about that. There's plenty of it. Uh, especially on the internet. Be very careful when you hear people talking about other believers. This is how serious God is about the unity among those who work in his name. Verse 43, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go into hell or into Gehenna, to the unquenchable fire. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. Now, we might think here that, that sin refers just to any old sin. 
that we should take drastic measures to rid ourselves of sin. And that is, of, that is of course, true, right? So I'm not saying that that's not what we should do. We should take drastic measures. But that is, of course, as you hear me say a lot, that's not what this passage is about. Mark's context points in a different direction. Sin here is a word that means to miss the mark. Always, that's what it means, to fail to hit what one is aiming at. And here the sin is a failure to hit the target of unity with those who aren't necessarily in our group, but those who are engaged in the same war. Sin here is a failure to hit the target of unity, unity of purpose, with those who are not necessarily in our group, but who are engaged in the same war, in the same battle. They are our allies. This is perhaps not too big of a deal when it's just a small group of disciples. And then there's this outside group that's, um, that's also working in Jesus' name. But multiply it across time, and, and we have big problems on our hands like we have today. These are written with a view to the larger church. And the warning here is that Gehenna awaits those who destroy the body of Christ. Okay? This is very serious. Gehenna. What is Gehenna? Gehenna was that trash pit that was outside of the walls of Jerusalem where people would go and dump their trash and it would be perpetually burning. It would never go out. And Jesus says to those who, who downgrade and denigrate the unity of the body of Christ, this is what awaits them. He's talking to the disciples as a warning to them. You say, well, that doesn't really fit our paradigms. No, it doesn't, but that's who he's talking about. If you, if you can come up with another way of thinking of this, let me know. But he seems to be talking to the disciples and warning them of Gehenna. Now, this, of course, and I should say, is hyperbole. He doesn't mean cut your hand off or your foot off or your, pluck your eye out just to remove uh, any temptation to sin. These body parts are essentials for the full functioning of the body. We all need them. The exhortation to unity, however, is so serious that the full functioning of the body, the full expression of our being, should, should be sacrificed for the sake of being a member of the body of the Messiah. The, the immediate meaning of this hyperbolic statement seems to be that John and the others had better watch out in case their desire for honor when Jesus becomes king prevents them, in fact, from being his disciples at all. Anything that gets in the way must go. Now, you think this is not serious? You look at, you look at Josh Harris, what happened with him. Anything that gets in the way in terms of our vain desire to be known and to be honored must go. We must become like children who had no status, right? This is what it is. John and the rest of the disciples who are arguing over a preeminent place within the body or within God's kingdom had better watch out lest they themselves be prevented from being disciples at all. The problem, it seems, just to bring it home, is that the seeking of honor, fame, wealth, and notoriety, whatever puts us front and center as followers of Christ, will result in something like 
Gehenna, and it's not pretty. The disciples themselves are being warned about it. This is not some carrot and stick. This is not a way to say, okay, you're going to go to hell if you don't follow me right. No, this is a warning about how they are to do ministry. Many have self-destructed by building their own kingdom. God help us. There's a story in the Old Testament in Genesis 11 where we get a glimpse, a picture of what man's kingdom over against God's kingdom looks like. And I suggest we read it this way. It's called Babylon, Babel in the, in the text, where language deconstructs and no one understands the speech of the other. Their plans, their wicked plans, of course, are thwarted. The city of man does not endure because God sees to it that it does not succeed. It is this kingdom, the kingdom of Babel, of Babylon, of confusion, that's viewed over against chapter 12 in Genesis. In chapter 12, a different type of city and tower are built with and through Abraham, not made with hands, eternal. In this city, in this kingdom, people don't go about making a name for themselves like they did in Babylon. God makes one's name great. He says to Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great. I will make your name great, he says of Abraham. Just one chapter earlier, the people of Babylon, the children of uh, the sons of mankind, said, let us build a city and a tower, and let us make names for ourselves, right? This is what they're after. They're after that city that they themselves can build. This is not the city of God. This is the city of man. And this is... Uh, this is the wrong kingdom to be building. This is the kingdom the disciples were tempted to build. Now, this kingdom, uh, to bring this home, uh, this, final, this final passage in verses 49 through 50 in some way is to be seen as a conclusion to, uh, to this section, 38 through 50. How do we view it? He says in verse 49, for everyone will be salted with fire. Okay, there are two things going on. There's salt and there's fire. What is he talking about? Well, salt, you put on something. And what he's saying is that people will be salted with fire. What is he talking about? Salt is good, but if salt loses its saltiness, how will it then be made salty again? Have salt in yourself and be at peace with one another. This, this figure seems to, be, seems to be about a final assay. Now, those of you who work with metal know what an assay is. An assay, A-S-S-A-Y, is a way of testing the metal or the ore to determine its ingredients and quality. What he is talking about here is a final assay. Everyone will be salted with fire. You will be run through it. I will be run through it. And what we have done, if not for our own glory, will then survive. In that final essay, Jesus seems to be saying that our relations with others, 
those who are in the family of God will be examined. And the degree to which we have lived with peace in the same mission with our family members, that will be brought out. The final admonition and the movement of this passage is then, don't lose your saltiness. Stay focused on the king and the mission that he has given you, not the mission of others. He concludes with, have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Now, we haven't always put such a, uh, put, put such a high price on unity, but I suggest on the basis of this passage that we begin to think very seriously about these issues. 